Welcome to the show. You're listening to the Hope Radio Podcast. Real people, real stories, real hope. My name is Sean Davis. I happen to be your humble host. And joining me, as always, my co-host in life, my wife. Her name is... Just Jen. You're along with us as we keep the hope train moving on down the tracks. Choo-choo. I love it when you do that. That's my favorite part. <laughs> is it? Yeah. I look forward to it every day because I like it. I like you go, choo-choo. You always do the arm, too. You like, yeah. choo-choo. I think I told you before that was my nickname growing up. What? Yeah. Why? My, my dad called me choo-choo. Why would he call you Choo Choo? I've told you this before. Okay, but why would he call you Choo Choo? I don't know. You don't you don't have any idea? Maybe he knew I was gonna be on the hope train. <laughs> Maybe it was a precursor to that. Yeah. He always just called me Choo Choo. Interesting. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe either. I ran around the house saying choo choo all the time. <laughs> Maybe you liked trains as a kid. Maybe I liked a choo choo food. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I do know that to be true. Yeah. You are a foodie, a foodie at heart, that's for sure. Yes, I am. Well, uh, I love you just the way you are. I like it when you say choo-choo, and whether it's <laughs> chewing food or whether it's saying choo-choo, I just, I love it all. <laughs> well, that is good. That is good. So how are you doing today? I am great. Are you hope-filled today? I am. I am hope-filled. Are you overflowing with hope? Um, I think think I always can use hope. Actually. You think you can always use hope, yeah, right? Yeah, don't you think? Like, I feel like if you're overfilling with hope, then what the heck? Your cup runneth over? Yeah. Well, I see, I guess where I was thinking about it is like, if you're overflowing with hope, mm-hmm. you have enough to give to others. Okay. That's kind of where I would, that was the mindset that I, I don't have that. enough for others. <laughs> Jennifer! <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, nothing like being honest, right? Some days you do, some days you don't. I'm hoping this interview fills my cup overfloweth over whatever you just said. <laughs> well, just funny point though. Just because we're facilitators of the Hope Radio podcast yeah. does not mean that we don't have our less than days. I come here for hope. Do you? Yeah. Well, what what do we call you? You are a a professional listener with a voice. That's right. That's your role on our Hope Radio podcast. Yes. Professional listener with a voice. What yes. does that mean when you say that? That means I can sit here and listen and speak if I want. Yes. <laughs> Which is some shows a lot and some shows nothing at all. Exactly. Sometimes you don't say but a I'm word. But I'm taking it all in. I mean, if, if everyone could see my notepad, like I write so many notes with a lot of doodles, but so many notes of good information that... I absorb. And so that's what I'm doing too. You know, what's so funny is to watch you because I'm, I'm doing the show. I'm listening mm-hmm. and I'll watch you and you're doodling, you're drawing, you're drawing pictures. But the whole time I know you're processing what the information yeah. is that's coming in. It's my right? brain working. And then you'll write a few words out. You'll make your notes. There's a key points that will hit you and you'll write that out. You know, that's, that's awesome. It's, it's going to be your hope radio podcast doodle journal. That's right. That's awesome. I love it. And I can go back and flip through it and I can get my own hope just by looking at what I've done. Yeah, I I call it hope nuggets, but you write down the hope nuggets that speak for you. Yes. And I think that's awesome. And now me, I got to try to host the show, listen to it, and I don't (laughs) often have a chance to write down a hope nugget, but hopefully I remember. You did thank me for writing the notes that I do. Yes. You You do a good job. That's so awesome that you do all that. And I'm like, I know. I think we should keep a written archive of our journey of hope. I'm going to write a book of all my hope doodles and notes. Are you? No. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, you make me laugh. I love your honesty. All right. Let's time to time to tell some funnies. You got a funny you want to tell? I have a funny. Okay. I want to hear your funny. Okay. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I visited the doctor today and guess what? Uh Uh-oh. What? He told me that my sugar was too high. So I came home and I moved it to the lower shelf. (laughs) (laughs) That was a good one, too. I like that one. I love sugar. My sh- what? <laughs> do you sugar. really? You I do you do love it, but you don't partake in it very often. Yeah, I do. Mm. I love sugar. Interesting. I love sugar and I love butter. You love all food. And I love flour and I Except for sardines. You can't stand can sardines. You make cookies with that. <laughs> you don't like sardines. No, I don't like weird things. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> what else is weird? Um, escargot is weird. You think escargot is weird? Yeah. Fish. Alligator, is it weird? Yeah. Fish eggs are weird. 
What else is weird? Um, snakes weird. <laughs> Sharks weird. Um, <laughs> oysters are weird. Oysters are weird. Yeah, and the octopus is weird. <laughs> With the tentacles is weird. What is that called? Calamari. No. Yeah. You don't, don't like it? No, I don't. It's weird. It is weird. You won't eat it if it's weird? It's very weird. And if it's weird, you won't eat it? No. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want it. I don't want it. <laughs> you should see the face you're making right now. All right, you ready for my joke? I'm ready. Okay, what do you call a boomerang that won't come back? Cow tongue is weird, too. Jennifer. Cow tongue is weird, too. Well, so are pig's feet. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's so many weird things that so people eat. So are chicken's eat. feet. Why do people eat them? So are pig's ears. But why? I don't know. Like, that's not a delicacy. That was a good word. It's not, though. <laughs> All right, here's my joke. Why, what do you call a boomerang that won't come back? Um, lost. A stick. <laughs> <laughs> That was a good one, huh? That was a good one. I like that one. Yeah. Well, I've got an interview for you. Okay. We're going to call up and talk to Mandy Menzer, and she's a health and wellness coach, also a professional speaker. She also is the vice president of wellness for UCLA Fitwell, designing, implementing, and facilitating cutting-edge wellness classes. And so we're going to talk to her, but more about her own personal story, mm -hmm. her story as a teen, her story with eating disorders and her path to recovery. And I think that this is a really, really important uh, topic today because I think a lot of people suffer in silence with eating disorders. And so we want to bring that into the light. We want to talk yeah. about that. And I think that she's going to be a phenomenal guest to have that discussion with. So yeah. I'm excited to call her and get her on the line. It'll be great. Let's you ready? Call her. All right, here we go. All right. I've got Mandy Menzer on the line. Welcome to the show, Mandy. How are you today? Oh, thank you, son. I'm great. Awesome. I'm really happy to be here. We're excited to have you. And, yeah. uh, you know, just Thank are you, you, you're in California, right? You're down in Southern California? Yep. I'm currently in Long Beach, California during the quarantine, mm. but I'm generally in Los Angeles area for the last 20 years. How's the uh, smoke down there? Because up here in Northern California, we've been besieged with uh, smoke from the fires and everything that's going on here in, uh, in Cali. So are you, are you I getting know, some clean air? I feel so... Uh, we're fine down here. Um, I know that like the Pasadena area, I think has some smoke too. And then the, um, area over by Hughes Lake up to five a little bit has a lot of smoke, but like Lancaster area, but down here in Long Beach, we actually got pretty clear skies. So I, I feel very blessed and I've definitely been keeping everyone in my, my prayers and on my heart with the, the fires in all the places that they are right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as, you guys are okay. Yeah, we we're in Northern California, and uh, this time of year is always a nail biter for us because we do live in an area right. that is surrounded by trees. And if there ever was a fire in our vicinity, Ugh. it'd be highly likely that that fire would lead to some sort of catastrophic yeah. property damage for us. But the, you know, the good news is, like like oh, right man. now, we're we're just in the path of the smoke. We're not in the path of the fire. So grateful okay, that uh, that it's not threatening us imminently. But yes, it, it it has been. I've never in all the time I've lived here in California, the only other time I've seen this much stuff in the air was as a kid. When Mount St. Helens erupted, we ended up getting ash that oh landed goodness. all around us in our house here in Northern California. That was the last time I saw this much stuff in the sky. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of just not too long ago, there were some major fires in like the Agora Hills area. Mm -hmm. And I was in Santa Monica and I came out to get my car and my car was just covered in ash. And I was like, what is going on? Yeah, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's, it's not fun. It's uh, it's definitely scary and also hard to do exercise outdoors when that's going on. Oh, you 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 know, it's hard to get your dirt church on on Sundays. Jen and I call it dirt church on Sundays. <laughs> you know, when you're when you're out there, the crazy thing is like when you're out there in it, you don't really notice it. But we've got some beautiful vistas and some great like and then when you when you get the context and you can see a 
long ways and you you can't see the river now or you can't see the other side of the canyon yeah. then you go whoa okay i get it it's it's a lot but you know it is what it is and uh just praying for the people that have really been in the path of devastation the people that have lost their homes and and stuff because that would that's never an easy situation to go through by any means um and i guess we're just grateful and thankful to be able to still be outside still have our home and uh and to be able to enjoy these beautiful mountains of northern california as you are long beach all right, Mandy, one of the things that uh, I was excited to talk with you about, and I've actually never shared this on the Hope Radio podcast before, but you know, in my early teens, I think I was probably 12 or 13 years old, I was, um, I was called chubby, I was called fat, I was called all these kind of things. And looking back at some of the pictures that mm. uh, I have of myself, it was, it was one of those things that uh, I, I wasn't really you know, as a kid, maybe you have a few extra pounds on, but like something about that whole experience, like, like being, I think ridiculed to some degree. And I don't even remember whether there was multiple offenders or maybe it was just one or I don't know, but like that just fired off something in me and it made me, uh, want to solve the problem. And the way in which I solved the problem was I just stopped basically eating you know my mom would pack me a lunch I would probably mm. eat a sandwich a day she used to you know she didn't know what was going on really she just looked at me and she used to say I'd eat like a bird but I didn't I didn't want to eat dinner I'd barely eat my my food but I just basically began to starve myself to death and um, wow. you know yeah. I that was that was really a, a battle that began I would say probably two years worth for me dealing maybe even longer of dealing with being um in retrospect anorexic you know i just i did not want that negative stimuli i did not want to be called those names and i felt like the only thing that i could do to control that was to to stop eating so i was i was very interested to to talk with you because i know that you've got some shared experience in that realm and i think that there's a lot of people in this country that have been through something similar or like that and 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 i don't think it gets talked about enough and i think that um you know us having a conversation about it today could offer some hope to somebody else so why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience in that same regard yeah so thank you for sharing first of all your story and uh yeah i i was a young age as well like in middle school I did similar things like not eating all of my lunch and uh, trying to compare like my physical activity to what I was actually eating and was completely under the really insane assumption that I only burned the number of calories I ate by supplementing exercise to the amount of like quote-unquote calories that burned thinking that my body didn't burn any more calories than just what I did for exercise, forgetting that the body, you know, has a basal metabolism, which burns a large number of calories, mostly, most people over 1500 calories a day, just by your brain function, your digestive function, just getting up and down to go, you know, to the bathroom or, you know, just your normal functions. So I was um, very much undernourished for many years because I was so, I was being so strict and taking it so literally. How did that and, start for um, you? Was it, was it ostracization from somebody else? Did people make comments to you or was it just comparison? So how did that, do you, do yeah. you know where it began for you? So it's interesting because it was similar to you in that I wasn't actually, I wasn't chubby to begin with. I was pretty thin already, but in middle school, a big difference happens. Um, I went feeling very uh, safe and confident in my friend group in elementary school to switching to middle school and actually feeling very alone and like hadn't made, you know, decent friends yet and didn't have that safety that I had in elementary school. And a girl um, in my PE class, you know, I can look back and now realize that was all in jealousy, but I had you know, I would beat her in things like the mile run and things like that. And she decided to spread a rumor and she was more someone that was already connected with a bunch of people. I was coming in from a different school, so I didn't have uh, friends already in that class. And she spread a rumor that I cheated on my run. And then these other girls would b bother me at lunch. There were eighth graders, um, kind of harassed me in different ways. And so for the first time in my life, I was, 
totally feeling, you know, like the excluded one and um, somehow, um, yeah, feeling ostracized. And so I had no idea that my eating behaviors had anything to do with that. You know, I was just thinking I wanted to be um, thin for dance because I was in dance all my life and uh, watching what I ate so I could have high performance with athletics. But it's beyond a shadow of a doubt that that behavior was being driven from feeling, um, you know, less than or feeling like I was ostracized and, and some of the feelings that were coming up for me around that were actually driving these behaviors to, in a way that manifested through this restrictive stuff with food. I, th- I think that's like a critical point. Like the thing that came flooded to me is that like, I don't think parents realize how challenging being the new kid in a new school can be yeah. because you do not have that network. And our oldest son, Colby, actually experienced that firsthand. And so we've talked to him several different times about that. We didn't understand exactly what he was going through because we had a similar situation where he'd switch schools right between eighth grade and, and high school. So he's coming basically into high school into a brand new school with no real friend network, right. you know? And so sometimes that can be extremely yeah. challenging. Jen and I both as, as kids, uh, we didn't know each other at the time, but like I didn't spend the first five years of my education. So from first grade through fifth grade, I didn't stay one year at one school ever. So I was kind of always oh, wow. the new yeah. kid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I think that that sometimes can be a, a huge disadvantage, especially if you don't have any friends. And then if somebody is threatened by you, the the, the, the weakest link in your chain is to have somebody comment about your physicality, you know, what yeah. you look like, et cetera. Because, you know, if somebody's threatened, they lash out. And it sounds like you had a mean girl experience, you know, mm-hmm. somebody's threatened by you, jealous of you, et cetera. And so she's going to, she's going to tear you down, you know, by, by commenting and, and creating rumors, etc. Yeah, definitely. And then, yeah, with the eighth graders, it just seems like they were probably girls that had a lot of insecurities themselves and just thought, oh, this, this girl seems easy to affect. Cause I was definitely, and still am, you know, fairly sensitive person. I really have grown tremendously in not caring what other people think of me. But just in general, I tend to feel things pretty deeply and have, you know, high levels of, of like empathy and, and feelings. So I think that that can also pour into to that as well, because later I also put together in therapy that it's like I was managing feelings through how I used food. And, and, I, don't, and I don't think that's uncommon, right? Food and emotion connection is is a strong one. Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, that's, you hear the term emotional eating thrown around a lot. And I think it almost made casual like, oh, yeah, okay, when you're sad and upset, cause someone breaks up with you, you're going to cry into a gallon of ice cream. But you know, it's, it's really not funny. And there's also, <laughs> there's also like more depth to it than just like this crying or like, you know, it's, there's a lot of nuances to all the different things that one can feel on a very subtle level that you're not even realizing is, you know, building up in inside of yourself that may not have a place to express itself or to be processed. So I think it's tricky because we don't learn, we certainly don't learn that in school. Um, there's no like course on how to process your emotions. <laughs> I've now there are because, um, you know, cutting edge therapists and uh, mental health professionals have created those, but usually you don't, you don't find those until at least I didn't find those until my young adult life. I I agree. And you know, there's not enough education on it. There's not enough of, I think that's one of the formative problems with education in general. I don't think that there's enough preparation for actual real life, whether it be finance and dealing with money or whether it be food or fitness or, you know, those types of things. I think, I think it's, it glosses over that stuff in, in mass. And so in, in your experience, so you started with anorexia, you stopped, you stopped eating like I did, or did you, were you bulimic at the time too, or did, did it ever morph into something more? Yes, in middle school, it was purely anorexia, and it wasn't until high school where suddenly I found myself purging, and I, I say it like that because it almost wasn't, in, it wasn't intentional. It's not like I planned it. it it's, 
I believe now looking back that it was a cumulative of restricting myself for several years. It's like my body was like at a breaking point. It was like, we, we can't keep doing this. So somehow like it was starving inside. So it was like, somehow it was going to try to get me to, to eat more. But then the second I would eat more, I'd feel guilty about it and get rid of it. So that started that cycle. Uh, fortunately, that was something that I recognized within, like, I guess the first, like, six months, I I realized that, okay, I don't, and it was very secretive. My parents didn't know. My friends didn't know. Um, usually, these are very private issues that people keep to themselves, at least initially, and I was very good at hiding it. And I finally, though, got to a point where I just looked at myself in the mirror. I remember I was 15 and a half and it was like I knew I couldn't actually stop like I had tried to stop and I couldn't and that's when I realized crap like this is a this is a big problem and so I rode my little bicycle (laughs) to Barnes and Nobles which was you know the thing you did back in the 90s Um, (laughs) and I wanted to learn more about eating disorders as I didn't want to tell my parents it was really hard that was like a discussion I didn't want did not want to have it and it doesn't matter how good your parents are my parents are lovely parents it's so hard I think for a lot of adolescents to really open up with darker stuff that's the hope train by the way that just uh (laughs) (laughs) rolling on down the tracks that's right well, I found my hope because every book that I picked up in that Barnes and Nobles about eating disorder said, you need professional help. You need professional help. You need professional help. And I kept reaching for more books, hoping that it wouldn't say that. And <laughs> and um, I was like, hmm, there's a theme here. And, uh, and another, you know, big moment of confrontation where I realized I was going to have to tell my mom so that I could go to a therapist and at least start start the journey of healing and so I did and that was one of the hardest conversations you know that I've ever had to have it was it was heartbreaking for her it was heartbreaking on so many levels for her to feel like she didn't know to feel like how had she failed me as a parent and it was really heavy for her but it was also heavy for me it was you know shattering to my quote-unquote image I I had definitely had the Type A personality, achiever, getting straight A's, doing everything right, wanting to be as perfect as possible for my parents and my family and make them proud. And this was something that was, you know, a source of a lot of shame. So that conversation was monumental, um, but it was a turning point at the same time. And I always say with, you know, things as far as spirituality is concerned, like when you finally let something into the light, it's a huge turning point in which, you know, then spirit can move in much greater ways on your behalf when you bring something into the light. And obviously I didn't want to, but um, it kind of, you know, it really was apparent to me that I didn't really have a choice that it was, you know, that was the only way to go in order to help myself. And she got me a therapist. And honestly, I had to go through a few therapists before I found one that I was feeling good about. And then, you know, was on this long journey. It took um, a full to truly, like, completely be delivered and free from it uh, was a full, like, 10-year process. Wow. That's a long process. That's a big deal. Yeah. So, you know, to anyone out there listening who's, in the middle of that or in the beginning of that, I don't want to discourage you by thinking, Oh my God, like 10 years, you know, but just know that it got better and better as time went on. And, um, it's very similar to, um, addiction of any kind where there's relapse and, and instead of looking at relapse as failure, it's relapse as revisiting things that, you may need to understand at a deeper level for yourself in order to fully heal. Um, sort of like, you know, when you have a big pile of leaves in a backyard and you are like going to rake them, you're going to get a lot of the big ones 
in your first go, but then there's going to be, you know, you need to sweep it a second time and a third time and then pick them up individually with your hands for the ones that just aren't working with the rake. And a lot of processes are like that. You're not going to, in one fell swoop, in, you know, one six-month program, all of a sudden just go from completely in the midst of a struggle to completely delivered. Usually takes a lot longer with some of these these deeper patterns. I guess one of the questions that I have is for somebody that's listening right now, you know, I think I think as a parent and I and I wonder like how would I know? Like what are the signs? Like can you like what would you say would be the best things to potentially look for, for, for a parent, because this is so easy, I think, to hide to some degree because you eat food. It looks like you're eating. And the next thing you know, you're in a bathroom and you're purging. Like, like what would you say would be signs that somebody could look for to maybe see this in advance of their child having to come to the same kind of, you know, here, I'm going to, I'm going to shine a light on the, on the darkness that I've been carrying for 10 years. Like, do you, do, what would you guess would be yeah. the, the, the things that would be the warning signs? Well, it can be so tricky because it, it's so hard to tell when something's just like, oh, they they want to, you know, get a little healthier and they're doing something good for themselves or are they, you know, in total restrictive land where they're really um, being pretty extreme with a, with a diet plan. So I feel like anything that's a little more extreme, you know, really looking at that to see if, like I would, my mom kind of knew something was up because some of the things I would do is I'd only eat like um, a power bar before I go to a soccer game. And then afterward I would eat like a can of corn and a, and a half a can of beans, but that was for carbs. But, and now we wouldn't, now someone probably wouldn't eat those things, but at the time the carb craze hadn't hit. And, but that was, was weird. You know, what teenager is eating a power bar and then a can of corn and a half can of beans for their meal all day very you know that's a little bizarre but I would also say just if you notice moodiness or irritability that might not necessarily that could be a million things but I honestly I don't I don't think it's a simple tell and I don't think it's a simple solution either but I my number one suggestion for our entire world is to really try to normalize therapy and just make sure that we're able to have an unbiased person to talk to for our children, for ourselves, because the the reality of it is I could say something really cookie cutter and here's, here's the way that you can get your kids to talk to you when they're teenagers, but most likely that is somewhat out of your somewhat out of your control. There's sure there are things you can do and there's a relationship that um, you can build from a young age. But sometimes it's really not anything that you did wrong as a parent. It's that they are going through something. They are in an age where things are harder to talk about with their parents. And just like when, when a kid, you know, listens to um, someone else's parent or a babysitter better than they listen to you, you're like, wait, I, I told you that. Um, <laughs> we, we know I that. I think it's similar. Yeah, you know that well. Yeah, we know that well. With four boys, we know that we know that well. Like, why are you? Why are you the best version of Brayden when you're at somebody else's house, or why are you the best version of Gavin when you're somebody else's house? Why don't we get that version? <laughs> totally. And so, you know, I think that sometimes uh, therapists, or all the time, therapists can create a really nice, safe space for someone to process things and if we make it more normal and less like, Oh, you have, you only go to therapy when something's wrong. Then if everyone had more of a regular practice of that and that safe container to just talk about things, they might already be warmed up enough to then bring up stuff that's going on, knowing that it's safe with the therapist and that most things the therapist, you know, won't share unless it's like, like threatening of course, but that, if they don't have an outlet, it's rare for a teenager to talk to their parents about something that's, you know, darker. Yeah. That, and I uh, don't know if there's really some like tried and true solutions for that other than actually planning around that. 
yeah, I don't think that there's a one size fit all kind of a, a approach to this whole situation, but I am a thousand percent behind you on the whole therapy, counseling, et cetera. I'm, I mean, I'm the product of six years worth of individual counseling that I went through from 2009 to really 2015. Jen and I've been through a couple of years of counseling as couples and I can't advocate for it enough. I, I, I don't understand why it has stigma. I don't understand why, um, you know, people are, are reluctant to do it, but I, I, I can't sing the praises of it more. Like, we're not given a rule book. Like, I, I wasn't given a, here's Sean Davis's owner's manual, and here's why you're going to act this way at 13, and here's what you're going to go through at 17, <laughs> yeah. and here he, here's why you're angry, or here's why you're emotional, or, or whatever. But I think that a good therapist can really help to to show you a mirror of yourself, like here's what you're doing and, and ask you questions that cause you to look inward and then root out that stuff. You know, where did that come from for me? Like, where, exactly. you know, I, I remember being in therapy and I was in therapy for probably two and a half years. So just give you context. And I was going, you know, once a month um, at this particular time, but I'd been in therapy for that long. And then all of a sudden my therapist asked me a question and like the question just flood. I went to like, all of a sudden I was an eight year old boy again. And I was hearing my stepfather tell me I was never going to amount to anything and I wasn't going to be successful. And after two and a half years that, that came out. But once it came out, once it, Mm. once it hit the light, once it was, you know, uncovered, Mm -hmm. it didn't have any power over me anymore, but it took that long for the layers to get unpeeled for me to go back to that eight year old kid again. And so like, I, I'm a thousand percent behind you. I think it should be a prerequisite for adult life is, you know, a couple of years worth of counseling, you know, before you turn 21, 19 to 21 here, we're going to, we're going (laughs) to teach you about yourself, you know? Yeah, or just, you know, making it somewhat of a lifestyle that mm-hmm. it's part of wellness. It's just as important as going to the dentist or going to, you know, the gym. Yeah. Um, emotional wellness and thinking that, oh, we just need, you know, one or two sessions and then I'll be fine. is like saying you only need to go on a run once and then, you know, you'll be good for the next six months. <laughs> Great analogy. Yes. So true. Like you, you can't get into physicality and, and be in shape if you do, if you do it one time, like you got to have that re- repetition. So for you, you were anorexic, then bulimic, and then did it lead to anything else afterward? Or, or was that, that the struggle mainly for you and at the height of your challenges? Well, they, they call it the ABCs moving from anorexia to bulimia to compulsive overeating. So I kind of ran ran that trajectory without knowing that I hadn't read that in the textbook yet. It wasn't until later that I looked back and thought, Oh yeah, I guess I, that's what I did. What and does compulsive because, overeating really mean? Like wh- what did that look like for you? Well, what that looked like was another, it's like bulimia was a response to the anorexia. And then I think compulsive overeating was a response to bulimia. So I was really determined to stop purging, but I was still in the behavior, but now I had, created a pattern of binging so I was really kind of using a lot of willpower to be like okay we're not going to purge we're not going to purge but this habit of binging was in place and so I would get into the binge part of it and then be really good about okay I'm not going to purge but unfortunately in a binge obviously as it um, (laughs) assumes is, is a lot of food so in compulsive overeating, it's kind of like the binge without the purge. And so it's like a, a like compulsive uh, reaching for a lot of food and all of a sudden, you know, like half the refrigerator's gone or, you you know, instead of eating a bowl of ice cream, you've eaten three bowls of ice cream or, you know, things where you're, you're all of a sudden eating a large quantity of whatever it is you're eating and in one sitting and feeling sick. And it was really hard to, you know, get a hold of, of that eventually, but through a lot of, of work on intuitive eating and letting go of these restrictive ideas in my head, I was able to also overcome compulsive overeating. But one of the, one of the things about um, you know, bulimia and compulsive overeating is, the, the pattern is still there to restrict. So if I'm labeling certain foods as bad and certain foods as good and labeling or, or telling myself that I'm not allowed to have any chocolate or I'm not allowed to have any cheese or I'm not allowed to have any pizza, guess what I'm going to want? 
chocolate, cheese, and pizza. You know, like it's, it's, you create a really hard, fast rule that you cannot have something. And it's, and it's a rule that's just, you're externally imposing on yourself and it's not coming from a more intrinsic motivation, then your natural response for most human beings is going to be to rebel against that rule. And we see that um, in a lot of things in life, you know, like nobody likes being told what to do and we don't like ourselves telling ourselves what to do either. So there's this uh, rebelliousness that is a very common tendency in most people to rebel against something we're being told to do. And so you have to, like, what I had to do was, well, several, several things. But um, one being exploring what I really needed and, and actually meeting myself where I needed, emo- what I, for what I needed emotionally or um, even with, like, naps. Like, I, I had a really high standard that I needed to be super productive all day long, every day, seven days a week. And I would never give myself enough time to rest. And just that alone was part of the puzzle of like, oh, instead of like grabbing more food or grabbing another coffee, I'm going to actually just let myself take a nap. Um, that even undid some of it. And then on a deeper level, you know, doing more journaling, going to therapy, crying the tears I needed to cry, like literally and figuratively, it's like it's it releases all that emotion so that there's nothing there that I need to subconsciously stuff down. If that makes sense. Yeah. I I didn't know I, I didn't know I was doing that, but once I was in enough therapy, I started to realize, Oh my God, this isn't about being skinny. This isn't about like, like Mandy's like surface level obsession with wanting to look like a, like a, you know, model or, something like that because honestly I I thought I had really labeled myself as stupid and dumb for having this problem and why why would I obsess so much about this and let this be what I I'm so shallow and um like why like why am I obsessing about looking a certain way and had I really didn't realize how deep it was and how much was behind it and that it wasn't about that at all, that it was that I was stuffing feelings and I was um, struggling to accept myself at a much deeper level than just you know, this quote unquote, Oh, I want to look thin so that um, I have power and agency in the world, which is part of it. Yeah. Um, I'm not, it, it is part of it. Um, but it's not, it really isn't the real reason. And I think once you connect with what the real reason is, that's that's your first step in, in recovery. Well, number one, the first step is to recognize that there's a problem. But number two is is connecting with what is the motivation? Where, where am I coming from from this? So, you know, fast, how long, you said it took about 10 years. So how long has it been since that 10-year time frame? And what is your relationship with food today? So it's been over 10 years now. And... I still have maintained in the, in the past 12 years a, a level of freedom and peace that I, you know, thought I, honest to God, thought I'd never have because when I was, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old and really trapped in it and preoccupied by it, I could not, it was so hard for me to even imagine being able to just load up a plate of food and, eat it until I was full and then put down my fork and that was it. You know, like I, I never thought I could have that much peace and freedom with it, that it would just be easy like that for me. And it just, it genuinely was about excavating all of the emotions behind it and all of the more, the soul needs and the, my identity, my self um, image and my self love the more I work on that, the more I deepened that, the less and less power any of those behaviors had because I didn't need them anymore. Um, those were, you know, behaviors I was doing unknowingly for those reasons. And it, and it can be really hard at first to admit like that you have this self love problem. No one wants to be like, yeah, I don't love myself. Um, that's not, (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> it's not like general, generally something people want to like admit to, but it's okay. And, and, and really like, I realize so many people, so many people struggle with it. Even if they don't struggle with an eating disorder, they struggle with it on some level. And usually every human being can relate on some level, you know, having negative thoughts about yourself and or having insecurities. Yeah, I don't think anybody can't. I mean, I think every everybody on you're right on some level has experienced that, gone through that. But I think I, you know, just as I, I hear you talk, like I just marvel at your progress because, see, in in most in, instances, because you you said this is very much like addiction to to some degree, and I agree mm-hmm. with you, it is. But see, the answer to most occurrences of addiction is abstinence. You know, it's it, mm-hmm. uh, 12 steps, counseling, et cetera. But if you're, you know, heavy alcoholic, like I haven't drank in 10 years, over 10 years. So the answer is abstinence. You don't, you don't go that way. If it's drugs, you don't go that way. But, you know, like food is a necessity to life. You know, it's yeah. almost, it, it, it's, it's in a similar vein as the challenge with, um, with sex addiction. You know, it's sex is part of life. Food is part of life. So how do you overcome something that you still have to do, that you still want to do, that you still need to do to, to have a fulfilled right. life, yet have a proper relationship with it. I think it's one of the most challenging things to overcome because you have to deal with it every day on a recurring basis. It's like it's like yeah. being the alcoholic that works at a bar or being an alcoholic that, that right. has to drink every day for some reason, but yet you don't overdrink. You know, like it's just a... Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, I, I feel... Like it's the blessing and the curse all at the same time because I surely was at, at the beginnings of my recovery was very upset about that. I'm like, yeah, it's not fair. I have to face food multiple times a day. Like I can't just walk away from it. It's what we need to live. Um, but the blessing in it is that is is in the very same thing that it forced me to really look at the relationship with it in a, in a deeper way. I couldn't not face it every day. Um, and that's one of my theories on even drug and alcohol, um, addiction is to an extent. I'm not, I'm not advocating for people to still drink or still, I think abstinence is really key. But at the same time, sometimes the way I see certain people and friends of mine deal with a relapse can be very, um, I don't know, just it, instead of it crushing their entire world, it's kind of, I relate it to diet. Like if I had to, I had to pledge to never diet. So that was what I was abstaining from. It was like, no more restrictive behaviors, no more of that all or nothing thinking. And a lot of times the the tricky part with abstinence with drugs and alcohol is that it's a little bit all or nothing thinking. And so I think it can also be harder for for someone with drugs and alcohol to find a way for it not to be all or nothing thinking anymore. Yeah, I could, I could see that. I could you see. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like this mentality of all or nothing is what I think at a base level drives addiction of any kind. Yeah, it's that singular binary perspective of it. It's either zero or one. It's either all or nothing. And uh, I agree with you. That can be extremely, extremely challenging. And and so, like, is your when you, when you go to eat now, do, does any of this even come up? I mean, are you able to prepare a meal and and eat and not even think about it anymore, or is it one of those things that it's always with you to some degree? So for me personally, I truly don't think about it. Honest, I most people will say in like recovery type. Things. You'll live with this your entire life. Well, I, I honestly can disagree with that statement. I think that for 10 years, I was still going to live with it. And I was still going to have, or, you know, I, you, you can't put a day on it per se, but at the same time, like 10 ish, 9, 10, 11 in that realm of years, it became so much less of a charge, less of a charge, less of a charge until I just with like living my life and I, re- I realized that it's been like 
over a year since I had really even thought about, I'd really created a lifestyle for myself that works. And, but part of that lifestyle is allowing myself, like, it was like, I don't know, a month ago, my, I got a big bag of gummy bears from my friend in the mail for my birthday. And I was like, oh my God, I love gummy bears. This is going to like <laughs> help me. Um, so, but one night, like I was watching TV and I had like probably, I don't know, three or four handfuls of these gummy bears. And, but then that, that feeling of like, oh, I don't know if it's like, that doesn't feel so good. Like all of a sudden this really subtle switch goes off for me with sugar, especially. And I just honor it and I just go, okay, that's enough. And, you know, I had more than I, you know, than what would have been quote unquote, uh, in a health book. Uh, but I definitely didn't have like this. I just have this very like, Oh, I feel that little sugar switch go. Okay. Let's put that away. I don't want to, I don't want to feel sick. And it's just very, it's just very self honoring. I'm coming from a place of, I just, want to be loving and caring and listen to my body and listen to all those internal cues. And that's what the key was for me. It wasn't about, I I had to throw away this. I I really never felt that imposing external rules or diets would ever work. And it never did work for me. Um, I know some people swear by certain things for me personally, from an early point, I just, I started to realize I, I just can't go on some super restrictive diet. That's just not going to. Yeah, I don't. Fly. I don't think that there's a one size fits all for everybody in that in that regard. I think that you know everybody's relationship with food is different. Like for example, I'm not really a big foodie. You know, so for me to like, I can I can forget to eat. It it's just one of those things. Jen, on the other hand, she plans every flipping meal that she's gonna. She's probably planning what she's gonna eat on Thursday morning at eleven o'clock or whatever. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like she she's just a, she she looks at pictures of food. She imagines food. She thinks about food. She thinks about recipes, etc. So I I think for me it's it's you know you can't have a one size fits all. Because I think everybody's no. relationship with food is different. But I, I was curious about something in, in the conversation, and I don't want to forget to ask it. And that is faith. Like, where did your faith play a role in your recovery and and how you recovered? So I was definitely, it played a big role um, because that's initially how I started to take my faith more seriously. I had always been raised um in a Christian home, going to church, that I didn't have that personal relationship, truly. You know, it was something that was more of a, you know, a family thing that we did. And I knew the stories intellectually, but, um, and I, and I had a sense that God loved me. I, it's not that it wasn't personal, but I also, I remember in my, like, 13, 14, I remember getting really, like, skeptical, like, I don't know. What do you mean this guy died on a cross? Like, I don't, I don't buy it. Like I was very like skeptical all of a sudden and not, um, believing in any of it. But then when I was struggling so much with the eating disorder, I didn't want to go to parties anymore because I knew that being around like alcohol was just going to make things worse for me. So I started gravitating towards um, a few friends that happened to be in a youth group and it was more safe for me and to go, you know, bowling on a Friday night with my youth group than it was to, you know, follow some of my other friends to a party with a bunch of alcohol involved. And through being involved in the youth group and finding ways to have fun that didn't engage with partying, all of a sudden I found myself really, you know, taking to this concept that, you know, I could create this personal relationship with Jesus and grow my faith and that maybe that would help me. And faith definitely became a big part of my healing journey and understanding it more on a spiritual level of, of soul hunger and spiritual hunger and really looking at different verses that talked about soul cravings and soul hunger Um and then again, like the thing I told you before with like putting something into the light. One time I had relapsed and I emailed all 
300 people at the church and told them as an act of faith that if I put this in the light to 300 people who I know may judge me initially, but I know for the most part do care about me, that, um, and it like brings tears up because I was so brave to do that. I was like, you know, 18 at the time and didn't want people to think of me that way. But I knew that I okay, I have faith in this verse that says if I put something in the light, you know, God comes swooping in. And I really saw, you know, miracles happen in my own recovery through allowing other people to know and um, not being afraid to talk about it and not being afraid to admit that I was struggling. And I would also create not accountability partners to... um discipline me when I didn't stay on course, but accountability partners more that I would just be able to say, Hey, I screwed up today. I just need someone to know. And then that friend to just be like, I love you. And that be, be enough accountability just in that. And those are the types of things that on a very you know practical level, but also obviously a spiritual level really help to put the pieces together and, bring me into a better and better place with it as the years went by. And I also participated in Celebrate Recovery with with that as my focus. What a story. What You're right. The courage to actually share that and actually to bring that to light in front of 300 people. Like I, that, that's a, that's a formative moment in your life in both your fear, your spiritual journey and, and in your uh, relationship journey in the, in the church, the community of the church, you know, to trust them enough to be able to share that and uh, know that that wasn't going to be ammunition for your, you know, some sort of negative consequence to you, I think is, is awesome. Uh, kudos to you yeah, for doing that. Actually, speaking of that, I, I've, unfor- I've had the unfortunate, um, thing of having certain clients who actually told me that, you know, they had the opposite experience where they were um, honest about um, cutting in this particular instance, and they were taken off the worship team. And I just want to say for anyone who's listening, who runs a church or has anything to do with leadership, that that's really not helpful. And it's really more punishment what we need is unconditional loving through our journey. And um, I don't believe that having someone up on stage leading worship that has some sort of pristine, impeccable record is, is what God requires for that. I feel that um, God's only asking for someone who has a heart to know him more and that addiction and struggles of this, this nature are some of the biggest opportunities one can have to know God at a deeper level and a more intimate, authentic level. Um, so in, in most circumstances, I would be looking at that person with more admiration to be up on stage um, fighting through their journey. Agreed. And here's what I know also. I know enough about Jesus to know he wouldn't have done that same thing. He wouldn't have shunned that person. He wouldn't have asked them to leave the the worship or leading team. And so I, I agree with you a thousand percent on that. I think sometimes the, the church uh, misses the forest through the trees, you know, that we are all sinners. There was only one perfect lamb, and that was Jesus. And the rest of us are all flawed, every single one of us. And so... It, every you, single one of us. Yeah, you, 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 I, I would agree with you a thousand percent. And so along the same lines of, of giving advice, as we close out the show, you've been a, an, an incredible guest. I just, I want to ask you to imagine that somebody's listening right now that is the 13, 14, 15-year-old version of you, or maybe somebody's listening right now that is the parent of somebody that they suspect could be going through what you went through. You know, what advice would you give? What would you say? What can you offer to give that person some hope that there is an end to this, that they can make it through this, that they can recover from this? I'll speak to a verse, John 8. 12 says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That speaks directly to just any walk with, with any darkness of any kind. And then secondly, you know, feel free to reach out. If um, you want to talk about this, I can hold space for you just to, you know, process and 
that's what I love, love, love doing. And it's a super fulfilling part of my life to hold space for others through their journeys. And the first two sessions are always um, complimentary just to help create a nice foundation of, of trust and communication to see if it's something that you're resonating with and feeling good about. And then, you know, from there we can move forward with more if you want. But even just in the, in the first two sessions, um, a lot can be lifted off your shoulders and you can, you know, leave the conversation feeling a lot better, at least having a little bit more of an awareness of, of what's going to be most supportive for you uh, as a parent or as someone going through it. And uh, knowing that I've been there hopefully will help um, to help create that safety. Thank you, Mandy, for that. And how, do, how does somebody connect with you? So if somebody wanted to reach out, if somebody wanted to uh, engage with you, how do they do so? Empowered by Love is the like quote unquote business uh, name that I, I run with, but the M is for Mandy. So it's not E-M-P-O-W-E-R-E-D. It's just the M. So if you want to add me on Facebook or Instagram, that's at M-P-O-W-E-R-E-D. I love B-Y-L-O-V-E or go to empoweredbylove.com or empoweredbylove at gmail.com. You can directly email me at empoweredbylove at gmail.com. And we're going to put all these uh, links in our Hope Radio podcast on both Instagram and Facebook. So we'll make sure that uh, people have access to how to get in touch with awesome. you through both of those avenues. And and I just want to say thank you very much. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your vulnerability. This is not something that is fun to talk about, but it's so necessary to talk about because I think the the struggle is far greater than what a lot of people realize. And I think the struggle is often a silent one. You know, it's somebody going through this on their own that has, you know, the weight of the world on their shoulders and the way they're dealing with it is to is to uh, take control over how they eat or what they eat or whether they purge or not. And I just think it's one of those things that, uh, you know, we can't talk about it enough because I think it happens more often than we know. Yes. And, and to leave it on a really positive note, just know that, like, I consider this journey that I've been through, honestly, one of the most rewarding journeys, even though it can seem like, well, why would I ever like that part of my journey? Um, I can really honestly say that there's so many, there've been so many blessings that have come out of it. So much deeper levels of self-awareness, so much uh, deeper levels of empathy, compassion, uh, ability to, you know, learn and engage with tools that are not only helpful for me, but are helpful for others. It's helped me like just be a more honest communicator and uh, get closer with God in tremendous, in a tremendous way through that so I really um it, there really is a silver lining in all of it for sure I, I believe that, and I, and I think that that's just, it goes to show the, the faith and goodness of God. I think God tries to take everything that was an adversity in our lives and, and extract the maximum possible good from it, and, and sometimes the yeah. most challenging, most difficult thing that you go through in your life, you can, once you're past it, look back on it as a blessing in disguise. That was one of the biggest reasons why we wanted to do this post podcast, is to let people know that, yeah, right now may be difficult, but it's just a season. You know, there's more to come, and who knows yeah. if God doesn't use this as a as a jumping pad, a launch pad for your purpose in life and your greatest accomplishments and greatest success and your destiny could be on the line. And often it comes making it through some sort of significant challenge like you did, you know, and, and I think that uh, you're a testament to that. Thank you. Thank you. And I know everyone has um, a story or, you know, testimony of their own. And, and I continue to use the experience with the eating disorder as almost like a template or a reference point for other struggles that come along. And so none of the learning that um, I learned through that journey is in vain because I, I can apply a lot of those same principles to other areas of my life or other struggles that come forward. And um, you just grow wiser and wiser through <laughs> obstacle. <laughs> so, this is and true. And I'm certainly far from perfect. Oh, my God. But, you know, I, 
I definitely can celebrate how far I've come. And I think, you know, that's a huge key too, is to really stop and take a minute each day to recognize something that you've done that day or I especially love 10-year reflections because, man, like when I look back 10 years ago and, and see all the growth, a 10-year snapshot usually can really help you to really realize, oh, my gosh, I am a whole totally different person than I was 10 years ago. And look at all that God has done in each moment of that journey. Um, so, you know, I, reflecting on that for me is, is helpful to make sure I'm not thinking that, Oh, what have I, you know, what have I done with my life? I have those days where I'm like, did I do, have I, have I really done anything? And then I'm like, oh yeah, wait, I guess I did do that. <laughs> and I did do that. And oh my gosh, I guess I have done a lot. <laughs> well, so. from, from an outsider to, to you, I want to tell you, you've done a, a, an immense amount. We're just so thankful for you. Thankful for your story. Thankful for your, for your vulnerability you've just been uh, incredible in, in shedding light on this. And so you you yourself have brought light to this subject. So we're bringing it out of the darkness mm. for somebody that's listening yes. and we're giving it light and you've taken an active role in that. So we're thankful and we're grateful for you. Oh, I'm thankful and grateful for you too and grateful for anyone out there listening. We, we are all in this together. Well, Jen, I don't know about you, but uh, I certainly connected with uh, Mandy's story just because of my own experience, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with uh, kind of not eating as a kid. And I think I went through that for two and a half, three years, anorexia. And I, and I, and I honestly am so thankful that I was able to just kind of evolve out of it. Like, I yeah. think I was given some grace and evolve out of it. But I think that that's one of the hardest things to kind of overcome because you've got to eat every day. Yeah, you have like, to eat to live. Yeah, like imagine for you if you had that situation where like you you struggled with that like you were purging and or not eating in general and like you're yeah. such a foodie like that would be a very difficult thing to overcome. Yeah, I I I love food too much. I don't want to I I I guess I could be an overeater. Sure. Right? You know, that's that's another that's another disorder. It's that's kind of like of binging. It. Like yeah. binging's <laughs> like, you know, being good all week and then on the weekends just eating everything in sight. Yeah, understood. I I guess I'm just thankful that she overcame it and Mm -hmm. now is a lamp, a light for others to potentially overcome that as well. I I just think that that's a uh, a difficult challenge. And I think the first message, the thing that I connected with the most is like, you got to you got to get help. You got to recognize that it's not likely something that you're just going to be able to come out of yourself. Like you need to do the work. You need to, to, to talk to somebody. The good news, though, is that I think that she was saying, even though she spent 10 years kind of in recovery, that she started to see the effects of the recovery sooner than that, much sooner than that. So it's like, that's a positive reinforcement to me. It was almost like the analogy I had was like weight loss. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to lose 30 pounds, you can't go, well, I'm going to lose 30 pounds next month. But if you lose five pounds, that gets you on the track Baby of steps. Yeah. yeah. Of, 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 I, uh, I think it's like a big, big problem, obviously, you know? Um, but I think it's like almost embarrassing to admit it. So I think people are afraid to get help. Yeah. But having people like her to help you, you know, who have been through it, I think it's easier. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's compounded with the age Mm because typically this is, this is an adolescent teen. I think this is where it begins. Obviously it can carry over into adulthood, but I think for, for those kids, it's just like she was explaining, like she was terrified to share that with her parents, you know, like it was like a really difficult thing and she had to have battled with it for a long time before she felt that compulsion to go you know what I need to sit my mom down and have a conversation with her yeah you know actually in high school like all the girls were bulimic like everybody would just go and throw up and I remember trying it and I just I couldn't throw up like I don't have that you know reflex so thank god it never worked for me likewise you know know? because that would have been a better versus not eating I would have rather enjoyed the food and tasted it like I didn't I couldn't do that because just the whole purging part of it I could never I could never uh, do either because I did try it myself as well so definitely I think in high school is the age where girls are starting to you know experiment with that because they don't want to gain weight or, you know, they're going to get bullied because of this. And, you know, kind of how like your story was too. It was, you know, school age child. So yeah, well, I think it's, I, I hope society is changing and evolving enough that oh, this man, is not I hope an occurrence so. that, yeah. you know, like everyone has to go through or that nope. is subjected to. So, yeah. all right. So if somebody wants to hear more of our hope radio podcast, they can do so. How? 
They can listen to us on iTunes. Amazon Alexa. Spotify. iHeartMedia. SoundCloud. I said iHeartMedia, not iHeartRadio. I did what oh. you did. You started doing yeah, you, you copied got, me. You got me to mess up. Yeah. Anywhere where you listen to your podcast, right? Yep. And people can connect with us on Hope Radio Podcast on both Instagram and mm-hmm. Facebook. Send us a message, especially if you have a story of hope to share or if you know of somebody that has a story of hope to share. And uh, lastly, we just ask for you to leave us a, a review on iTunes. Please. A review or a um, endorsement, you know, yeah. some sort of recommendation if you like Five the podcast. Five stars. Five stars, yeses, all the good stuff. All the good stuff. And I think that was such an awesome episode. I think we should come back and do more. I, I think, think we, we should we do should. another one. Okay. You ready? I'll be here. Let's do it. Here's a preview of Hope Radio Podcast, episode number 76. And I could tell you during that year, 1991 was a pivotal year, I went through hell in a handbasket because found out that he was doing drugs on a regular basis to the point where he would actually bring his friends to the house that we were staying at and would perpetrate that, oh, um, you know, your husband needs money because he's stranded in a car. And I would be like, oh, my gosh, what's happening? You know, and they didn't have cell phones where you could directly call. But I never would think that, why isn't he calling me to, <laughs> to, to contact me about where he is? But he would have friends come to the house, like they talking about needing money because of some made-up story. And I would just give and give and give and give. And realized that I was in a total whirlwind of just emotional and mental drama.